Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of last year. Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to uh, welcome in for the hour uh, photographer uh, David Mazel. He's an artist working in photography and video. He's the recipient of the 2018 Guggenheim Fellowship in the Creative Arts. And among his chief concerns are the politics and aesthetics of radically human-altered environments. His work focuses on power and production of space by examining landscapes and objects that are off-limits, quarantined, or hidden from view. And uh, David uh, Maisel joins us uh, from his studio, I believe, David Maisel, in Utopia, Sausalito, California. Yes. Good morning. Good morning to you. Appreciate you uh, being with us. We welcome in also in studio here uh, Katie Lee Coven, who's director and chief curator at uh, Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art on the USU campus. Welcome to the program. Better get your microphone up. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. David Maisel's book is, is called Proving Ground, I believe. That's correct. Yes. Um, we are excited to co-publish this book. Uh, the museum is with Radius Books, and it's been a uh, book that's been in the works for quite some time, and David probably has more that he could say on that. Right. We'll get into that as we go along, uh, including, we'll hold this, uh, David Maisel, but uh, how in the world did you get uh, access to Dugway Proving Ground? Let, let's do that a little later in the program. Uh, first of all, sure. I, I uh, gave a description of your work kind of in general at the beginning of the program here. How do you describe your, your work? I think you, it was a great description. Um, I think, you know, I've been sort of pursuing these these interlinked kind of twinned themes of development and destruction of the environment, particularly that of the American West and looking at how um, human beings sort of change the natural world and transform it through processes of industrialization and engineering and militarization. Um, and the project as a whole is a kind of multi-chaptered endeavor, and it's called Black Maps, which comes from, the title comes from a poem by Mark Strand, um, and it basically shows the American West as the site of a kind of human-induced trauma. You know, these um, particular projects, one might focus on forestry, clear-cutting. Others have focused on open-pit mining. Others have focused on water reclamation sites. And I'm generally working from an aerial vantage point, usually photographing from a small plane, sometimes a helicopter. Um, and the intention with the pictures is to hopefully encompass both um, aesthetic perspectives and also documentary ones, kind of in, in equal measure. Uh, so I understand, I hope I got this right, that you got into the, these kind of projects uh, with a project at Mount St. Helens, is that correct? Yes. Um, when I was an undergrad, uh, I was fortunate enough to be studying with the photographer Emmett Gowan, who was a professor there, and he w was actually engaged in a long-term project at St. Helens in the aftermath of the volcanic uh, eruption. And he had previously taken a student with him. He was getting ready to go again, and I kind of <laughs> volunteered uh, uh, myself to accompany him, and, and he generously uh, invited me there. And, you know... I think that expedition really sort of opened a whole world up to me. Um, witnessing those sort of radical transformation of the land on such an epic scale affected me very deeply. It was also my introduction to working from an aerial perspective, although most of what we did there was from the ground. Uh, we also did photograph the, the volcano itself uh, from the air. And, you know, by the time I was at St. Helens in 1983, certainly there had been plenty of pictures of the eruption and its aftermath in the media, but there, were, there was this element that, that really sort of took me by surprise, and that was seeing the, the, what I took to be the destructive force of the logging industry 
which was acting with this kind of blatant ferocity on the land in ways and at scales I'd never seen. And it was this sort of mm, collision between the natural world, even in the form of what we call a natural disaster, with the world of human activity that that interested me most. And so <laughs> that's where the kind of obsession uh, uh to pursue this theme really took form. That that is an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? Um, you you went you were interested as we all were in the in the uh, destruction from the volcano, and you found uh, this other destruction. Yeah, and I had been studying architecture. I had been intending to go into architecture, and in fact, um, for years I sort of. Um, shifted back and forth between architecture and photography. And I think that the things that interested me in architecture were how we make things fit into the natural world or how we disrupt the natural world and how and architects basically are sort of working with and manipulating space, which ultimately is what's happening as I'm making these photographs, especially from the air. Um, so the two things kind of dovetailed for me and informed each other and actually they still they still do so uh so uh, i'm sure there's purpose in aerial photography what uh, why did you move to that what what can you show that you can't show from the ground yeah um well there's a lot you can't see from the ground for sure um whether because it's restricted uh or simply because um you don't have the you know enough of a perspective on it um and I, I, I think when I first came to aerial photography, what really captivated me about it was it's not a, as a method per se, but it's just a, a way to see the otherwise invisible or unimaginable. And also a way that, um, you know, when you're working from the air and you're in constant motion, even if you're working from a helicopter where you can sort of hover, um, but there's this way that time and space kind of get strung together you know, the camera, even I'm hand-holding the camera, but the camera is, is never really occupying a static position, and so no image can be repeated. And so that experience of working that way is really um, it's this kind of intensified um, uh, way of seeing, I think. And so that intensification of seeing, uh, where you have this kind of constant stream of possible images and possible framings, um, that that's really fascinating, and so you know that that process for me um, is still exhilarating. That, that is interesting. You're you're in a you're in an airplane. You're moving, so it it can't really it can't it can't be static, right? Right. So I try to make <laughs> I try to make the process of making work as difficult as possible <laughs> on every level. Right. It seems you know. So uh, there there's must be some some deep uh, uh, internal issues that are going on there, but I, I do like a challenge, and, and it is technically challenging um, because ultimately I'm I'm making these photographs that uh, I'm intending to print at a fairly large scale. That scale has increased over the years. You know, when I first began, and I was, um, and I, I consider myself a printmaker. It's a really important aspect of of what I do as a photographer. Um, but I was making prints that were perhaps 10 inches square. Uh, now I'm shooting essentially the same format camera and I'm making pictures that are, uh, well, they were up to 48, four, four by four feet um, square. And, and now with the show at uh, the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum, I've actually um, sort of doubled down or tripled down on that. And the, the, the images are up to 10 by 10 feet. So there's a way that I really want the viewer to be encompassed by by the, the image and the experience of looking at these sites that, that are so kind of cordoned off and off-limits and unknown. That'll get us into the Dugway Proving Ground. Uh, before I, t- t- I want to uh, return to that, how, how you uh, sort of envision the, the viewers of your photograph- uh, photography uh, uh, getting that experience, how they experience it. I want to turn to Katie Lee Coven uh, first. Um, my, you've experienced these photographs, right, personally, and then you, sure. you, I'm sure you think about how people coming to the exhibit are going to experience these these photographs. Uh, yeah. t- tell me about that. 
Well, the works, as David says, they range from aerial photographs that look abstract um, on some level, and then you you can sort of discern uh, maybe a building or or something that tells you that it is an an abstraction, um, to more intimate stage-like sort of images of laboratory equipment at Dugway and machinery, and and those images are much more. There's a preciousness about them. There's also a sort of, I would say, a coldness about them, um, an alignment with the sort of mystery and you know of of what we know or don't know about Dugway Proving Ground. Um, so, and and the work in the exhibition shifts from um, twelve by twelve inches to ten by ten feet. So the scale of the work, um, in addition to the subject matter and how you're experiencing it range wild, wildly as you um, navigate through the exhibition. Um, and that's intentional, of course, in the way that David, um, you know, uh, composed and created the the works um, uh, on Dugway to give you different vantage points, um, ones that may seem more up close and personal and some that are much more distant and mysterious and um, and then th- there's also a, um, speaking of, uh, David, maybe you want to speak more about this, the Kaidomos um, video installation that's also in the exhibition in terms of mm-hmm. the number of photographs that you're taking, you know, from the air and how that resulted. Um, I'll just, just, it was, the piece, uh, uh, runs about 30 minutes long. I think it's 30 minutes. And, um, uh, there's an original musical score um, by Chris Collimore that um, David uh, commissioned to with this piece. Um, but it's a rapid-fire images, still images, um, aerial photography that you're seeing. Um, and maybe, David, you may want to say more about that. Yeah, l- let me ask you about that. Why, why did you commission music to accompany this? Um, Chris is a, an incredible um, composer and musician, um, I I wanted the piece. The, it needed music for sure. Uh, it needed a soundscape. It needed a way to um, kind of create this 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 um, very full uh, environment. And and sound really needed to be a part of it. I think with that piece, the, the kind of origins of it were. Um, well, I had been making these. I had been given permission to make these aerial photographs at Dugway of these weapons testing sites, and I think I felt, to some degree, the limitations of the still image uh, after so many years of working with the still image, and so I began to sequence these still images together, um, and so ultimately there are fifty thousand individual frames. That move at um, move by at a very rapid pace, thirty different images a second. So you actually can't quite discern what's happening. And it actually gets back to that that idea that I uh, was just expressing about what it's like for me to work from the air. That that it is a kind of flood of of images happening all at once, and I'm kind of extracting from them. So in that video, the Kidoimos video, um, every minute uh, the, the, the video will pause just for one second on, on an image of one of these testing sites and then propel you forward again. Um, so it's something, it's difficult to describe. It, it, uh, it, it's a very intense um, experience. And working with Chris, we actually spent a year um, going back and forth on his compositions and mine, you know, how we were kind of making these two different, uh, you know, the visual and the oral kind of work together. So it was a fantastic collaboration for me. Well, now we've uh, got into the uh, proving ground. So uh, first question, how in the wide world did you get access? This is a military installation. No, nobody, right. nobody, nobody gets out there. How, how did you get out there? Right. <laughs> right. Well, um, how did I get out there? Um, I had been in, in let's, let's sort of rewind, uh, to a prior project 
um, that I had made around the, the Great Salt Lake, um, Terminal Mirage. And one of the one of the places that I got to see then was the Tuila Army Depot, where um, expired chemical weapons are stored and eventually incinerated. And that set off a lot of alarm bells for me. Um, just this this idea of this landscape that was devoted to such endeavors, and so I started asking questions about that, and you know where where in fact some of these expired chemical weapons come from? Well, they come from one valley over uh, Skull Valley, which is the site of Dugway Proving Ground, and gaining access to Dugway took nearly a decade. I never really thought it would work, to be honest, um, and I. Uh, I was fortunate that a friend of mine, uh, John Balf, um, did some work with the Pentagon and was um, offered to make inquiries to the Pentagon on my behalf. So in 2004, he made an initial inquiry, and the answer at that time was not now, which I you know, in the, in the years immediately after 9-11 and under um, that particular administration, I actually thought that was a fairly in- encouraging response. So periodically, John and I would, would check in and, with each other. And um, in 2013, John introduced me to Richard Danzig. Uh, he's a former Secretary of Navy and Chairman of the Center for a New American Security which is a think tank in Washington that's focused on national security issues. And I presented him with a copy of uh, a, a recent publication of mine, um, it's, it's a book that has seven different chapters of my aerial work. And and I described my interest in looking at, at Dugway in similar terms as part of the evolution of the American West. Um, Richard, in turn, introduced me to James Petro, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, for chemical and biological defense at the Pentagon. And and with, with his support and then with the support of the facility commander, uh, who uh, at that point was um, Colonel Ronald Pfizer, I was granted permission to photograph a Dugway um, with, you know, the stipulation that I was comfortable with their own requirements that they have to ensure everyone's safety and security and and, you know, continued success of what they're working on there. And, you know, every single site I photographed at Dugway was was vetted um, quite closely and carefully. Um, when I was making the aerial photographs, you know, we had, I had put forth certain things I wanted to see. Some of them were, um, were denied. Um, others were granted. But I had... Um, a representative from Dugway with me in the plane, you know, just to ensure that I was <laughs> uh, doing what I said I would, but no more. Um, and on the ground, I was always with one or more um, Dugway representatives. And, you know, we had a kind of checklist. There was only, I think, really one area that that I did photograph that, that hadn't been sort of considered beforehand. Um, and that was a very interesting process where I felt like the representative that was working with me really understood that that my curiosity was kind of driving this whole thing. I didn't have any, a, a, a deep, dark political agenda. <laughs> I was not looking to make Dugway look bad, um, but I was really just kind of following my own curiosity. Um, so I, I am very appreciative of the the respect that they granted me and and the access that they granted me. Uh, so Dugway, uh, people don't know, this is West Desert, Utah, right? 800,000 acres. And the, the primary mission, at least has been, to develop and test chemical and biological weaponry and defense uh, programs. Uh, but right. what, what, what struck you most when you got up in that plane and uh, let your curiosity take you where they would let mm. you go? Well, the weapons testing grids that I was looking at from the air are, um, they're like line drawings on the desert. You know, they almost look like they could be um, Saul LeWitt, you know, abstract drawings, but, but in a different environment, or, or like 
the ancient Nazca lines. There's this, there's this incredible um, elegance to them, even though they're for pretty, you know, in some ways terrifying purposes. Um, the other thing that struck me was that essentially what's happening at Dugway with those weapons testing grids and with some other elements is that the landscape is becoming a measuring device for for toxicity um so the at these testing grids you know we they don't in the, as of 1969 certain tests uh, open air tests were, were no longer allowed right others still are but a, a substance a toxin or a facsimile of a toxin will be detonated and then it's toxic the levels of this toxicity will be measured um, across time and space. So seeing the landscape, um, this kind of, you know, really beautiful, staggeringly beautiful desert landscape kind of morphed into this um, measuring device for toxicity, you know, it's troubling. I understand the need for Dugway. Um, I think I understand the need for Dugway having spent time there um, even more than maybe I did beforehand. Um, you know, we live in a world where, where um, chemical and biological elements are weaponized. And so I think Dugway is, is a, it's a kind of necessary environment in a lot of ways. Um, so I think that, that to me was the most striking thing was that they're, they're both these, these weapons testing grids, they're both extraordinarily beautiful in a strange way and also very troubling. Uh, so the, the result, uh, the, the exhibit, Proving Ground, we're talking with the, the artist David Maisel and with Katie Lee Coven, who's director and chief curator at the museum. I want to turn next to Katie Lee Coven. Uh, so what interested you about bringing Proving Ground to, to the museum? Sure. Um, so this body of work was actually introduced to me by a gallerist, Mark Moore, um, in L.A. that we've worked with. And he reached out to let me know about this work because it is, you know, relevant to Utah. And um, and I immediately um, contacted David because to see um, where he was with the work, what the possibilities were, um, and to learn more. Because Dugway, um, you know, the way I've talked about it since we've been planning this exhibition is it's it's a part of Utah history but it's a part of Utah history that we don't really know that much about Um, and of course necessarily so we're not going to (laughs) know there's much we will never know Um, but this is an opportunity to um, to learn about Dugway um, a part of our um, history and you know in alignment with the mission of the museum um, which is to expand and diversify our understanding of art in the American West. Um, this is perfect, um, and uh, you know, I I've been so um, pleased to have visitors at the museum who have worked at Dugway and um, have even brought um, some things from their time at Dugway or information to share. Um, so, um, you know, it's very relevant to our audience. And we, we're, we're always thinking about different ways to engage our audience and our community. Um, and those, those stories have just been really fun to, to hear about and learn about. Um, because, you know, they're, they're um, veterans or um, were in the military at one point And, and of course, some of them were like, huh, an exhibition about Dugway. Who would have thought, you know, mm-hmm. there, <laughs> there's a lot of land out there. But, um, but uh, something, you know, bringing even that audience in has been really, I think, interesting, you know. And um, so, um, yeah, it, to expand our visitorship and to also have people uh, oh, can expand their thinking about, you know, art and the American West. Well, let's take a break. Um, uh, when we come back, more, of course, with David Maisel. Um, and uh, you can find out more about him uh, at his website, davidmaisel.com. Um, so that, Katie Lee Coven, that Dugway Proving Ground has not been out of shape uh, over this exhibit, right? Well, when we were planning this exhibition, um, I spoke with uh, my advisory board and um, 
thinking about, you know, we should, it would be good to let Dugway know that we're going to be having this exhibition. Um, and so um, through a contact, I was actually able to go and meet with um, the chief of staff, um, Vincent Lydiard and Becky Bryant, who is over there, um, public relations, to um, share with them what we were planning to do. And, um, and I asked them um, actually for uh, any information they could share about what he photographed, just sort of factual information that could help our docents when they give tours. Um, and then I also, as I, you know, presented to others that this is a unique part of Utah history, I said to them, um, you know, this is an opportunity to share information about Dugway, um, you know, because it is this mysterious thing that place that people think of in, you know, historical terms related to, say, the sheep deaths or, you know, um, live anthrax, you know, those those incidents that hopefully, you know, they won't have in the future mm-hmm. ever again. Um, and and so I asked them if they would consider participating um in uh, programming if we, you know, develop something. So, um, so Vincent is actually, um, I didn't know this at the time, but he's a USU alumni. So, oh, that helps, <laughs> um, yeah. so I think that helped. We'll have much more uh, with uh, David Mazel and uh, Katie Lee Coven following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Kane College of the Arts. Christopher T. Terry hosting a virtual auction June 5th for 10 paintings. Half proceeds donated to the Marion R. Hyde Family Endowed Art Scholarship for USU Art and Design students. Live stream at 6.40 p.m., bidding at 7 p.m. on facebook.com slash College. A limited number of tickets are available now for Writers in the Woods book signing and presentation by artists in the beautiful surrounding of northern Utah's natural settings. In July, writer Nicole Walker will share her collections, The After Normal, Brief Alphabetical Essays on a Changing Planet, and A Love Story at the Stewart Farm in Hyde Park. Join Utah Public Radio and Stokes Nature Center in July for Writers in the Woods. Ticket information at upr.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of last year. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are uh, talking with uh, photographer uh, David Mazel um, on the program today. He's joined us from his studio in Sausalito. He is a recipient of the 2018 Guggenheim Fellowship in the uh, Creative Arts. And uh, among his chief concerns are the politics and aesthetics of radically human-altered environments. And uh, focuses on the power and production of space, examining landscapes and objects that are off-limits, quarantined or hidden from view. And that certainly uh, describes Dugway Proving Ground. And so one of David Maisel's projects uh, is titled Proving Ground. He uh, took aerial photographs of, uh, of the of Proving Ground out there. Um, professor. So, Katie Lee Coven, what uh, the, the subtitle here, Aesthetics, Environment, and Politics of Dugway Proving Ground, what are you hoping uh, happen? Sure. So, you know, I hope that um, we'll expand learning about what we um, have on view in our galleries in an unexpected way. Um, you know, how often do you have an author, a photographer, and ecologist and the supervisor of a top secret, you know, biological chemical research facility sitting on the stage having a discussion. So I think um, it'll be, and and then of course, Matthew LaPlante, who does just a fantastic job um, uh, interviewing um, for UPR and then, you know, as a professor here at Utah State. Uh, David Maisel, uh, just a, a, maybe another question, uh, and then we want to get on to uh, another, some others of your works about Proving Ground. Um, you, so quoting from your, from your uh, website, you're interested in space, the landscape, and objects that are off-limits, quarantined, and hidden from view. And, of course, the Dugway Proving Ground certainly fits that, uh, that description. What, what's your takeaway from, from this, having, having made these photographs, made these prints, the exhibits up? What, what's your takeaway? Takeaway. Um, you know, I think when I first read about Dugway, um, I figured my chances of actually photographing there were about as as strong as my chances of photographing on Mars. You know, like mm. another place I'd really like to go, <laughs> but it but it wouldn't have happened. So one of the takeaways I have is actually the 
the process of gaining access there and the process of working there was really integral to the project, right? So the, the photographs are the result of so many um, hours and so many emails and so many communications and so many conversations that, um, you know, the project never could have happened without the support of people in the government and at Dugway, um, both in the military and, and civilian. So that, to me, um, is one of the kind of gifts of this project. Is it, it, Not to say that it's a collaborative effort, per se, but that it really did take um, a, a kind of coming together of, of many different minds. And so um, when I am in the museum, in the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum, seeing... Uh, it's it's actually been the opportunity for me to see um, this work installed so beautifully. Um, that's what comes to mind, and and you know, Katie is a, a, of course a, a critical component of of that aspect of it too. Um, to now have the work kind of out in the world, you know, not just say on my website or in my studio but um, in a museum setting, in a publication that is going to be, I think, very, very powerful. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's gratifying, and, and the arc of this project really goes back to 2003. So <laughs> it's incredibly fulfilling. Um, I think one of the kind of common threads through all the different, all, many of my different projects is, is, is sort of pulling back the curtain on, on a site or on, on, um, objects that, that, that have not had visibility before. And so that's what ha- has been able to happen now with, with Dugway to, to a, a degree that maybe, you know, hasn't happened before. Um, and it's, it's exciting. It's very exciting. And, and actually, being at the opening last month and being able to sort of, you know, see people's response to the work and and how they were engaged with it um, was, you know, really meaningful. Uh, Just one more question on Proving Ground, uh, because I do want to talk about your work so fascinating. Uh, This one really struck me. This is not an aerial photograph. This is from the ground. Um, You can find this, I believe, in the book. Um, Air Force Target Grid Building Number 4. Uh, it, it's right. a fairly large-sized building, sort of in, in different levels. Uh, who's, it's out in the desert. <laughs> the sole purpose, understand, is, is for, for sighting purposes, right? As the, the, the pilots are, are up in the air. And it, it seems to uh, speak to me about you know, civilization and desolation. Uh, um, I don't know what you feel about this photograph. I'm so glad you 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 came to that, and that was actually the site uh, that I was referring to earlier that I did not have permission uh, to photograph uh, at first, and we were driving across this you know vast um, uh, uh, area to go from one site to another that had been approved, and I saw that structure, and I asked Adam Rogers the. Dugway representative who was escorting me and uh, with me that day, uh, if I could, if we could stop and look at it, and it's a very enigmatic structure. Uh, it's this kind of um, ziggurat shape, uh, and it it somehow uh, encapsulated so much of what Dugway was about. Um, it, yes, its sole its its sole purpose is basically to be seen from above. Actually for its shadow to be seen from above uh, with the hard desert light. This um, ziggurat stepped shape makes a very um, clear uh, form on the desert floor. And it, so its shadow is to be seen from above by Air Force pilots as they make their way over Dugway in fighter jets en route to the Utah Test and Training Range. And uh, that's where they'll be doing, they, they'll be doing training in air-to-air combat and air-to-ground um, live practice bombing. So basically, the building is constructed as a kind of marker. Um, and yes, I thought that was just ma- magnetic in a way that I never would have been able to to predict in advance. And so there's something about the chance encounter there that I that I really appreciate. But that building um, 
you know, it sort of incorporates these these issues around abstraction and seriality and sequence and the sort of building up of related components. And all of those are, are, are these kind of devices of modernism that are also central to, to, to photography. So there's something quite um, fascinating and, and strange and enigmatic about that structure. And, and yes, in the exhibit and in the book, it, I'm moving, the, the, there are, I believe, six images, and I'm moving around the building. And the background goes from being open plain, high desert, and then as I move around the building, you see the mountains uh, behind them, and it's almost like a stage set. I mean, it's it, it, it's it's this kind of very strange uh, sequence of of images that that don't show you the entirety of the building, but show you um, something of the landscape around it as well. Katie Lee Coven, what uh, anything you'd like to, to say here about uh, David's work? So we've been moving along with discussion of several of his works. Yeah, you know, what struck me um, about um, and surprised me as I learned more, um, first being introduced to the Dugway Project, and I knew of David's work, of course, um, at a previous institution we had shown his work, um, and um, but I, it, I did not realize that he had revisited Utah a number of times, and that, um, you know, as an artist, who is from New York and now based in California, he continues to come back to Utah. And um, in the book, I wrote an essay um, and uh, thinking about, you know, what, would it, what is it about Utah that brings this and photographer who's interested in um, environmental issues and um, the alteration of the, the earth through human interventions or interactions with it? And, um, and, you know, it seems to be the, the incongruity of beauty um, with um, the alteration and, um, of the earth, because Utah has such diverse and beautiful, you know, landscapes, and, and in many ways very foreign and different and unique um, than other, other places, even in the West. Um, so that that beauty coupled with the realization as you uh, spend time with an image that it is it's not just about the beauty that you're because the the photographs are indeed beautiful, but it's that you're seeing something that's really not maybe that beautiful as well in terms of the realities of what it is. And, it, and then ask you to, you know, ponder and consider other questions about the work and the intention of the work. Uh, maybe to illustrate that point, David Maisel, I'll have you comment on uh, Terminal Mirage. And I'm looking at one of the photographs from your uh, website, davidmaisel.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this is uh, Terminal Mirage number two. Um, mm-hmm. And this, this, is, this is the Great Salt Lake, specifically the periphery of the Great Salt Lake, right, where there's, there's the mineral evaporation and industrial pollution and, and the like. Right. Sure. Yeah. So... Um <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm so glad you chose that image. Um, that that was a really central image to this project, uh, Terminal Mirage. And um, I began the project uh, in 2003 and continued it through 2005. It was inspired by the fact that Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty, this seminal earthwork uh, located in the Great Salt Lake itself, was... Um, coming back into view after having been submerged under the waters of the Great Salt Lake for, for I think, more than a decade. Um, and I've, I've been long interested in Smithson's work. And so that um, inspired me to uh, come to Utah and really look at the Great Salt Lake uh, and, and its environments. And, and uh, yes, there are something like 40,000 acres, or there were in the early 2000s, 40,000 acres of um, evaporation ponds that around the perimeter of the lake, and um, they seem to kind of go on endlessly and become this sort of labyrinth laid over the shoreline of the lake. Um, Terminal Mirage 2, that is a particularly troubling image. Um, it depicts uh, wastewater ditches from um, uh, that are filled with dioxin 
at something like 300 parts per billion. Uh, EPA cleanup action, I think, is supposed to start at two parts per billion. So um, it's a site where magnesium chloride is um, uh, taken from the lake, and then the the chloride is burned off in the form of chlorine gas. So it's a very troubled um, uh, spot, and it's it's a it's a spot that I feel. Um, sort of coalesces a lot of my my interests and concerns. But there is something in that image. There's a kind of, um, I mean, Katie referred to beauty. There's something very raw and 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 beautiful and almost bodily in this image. It, it really does seem almost like a wound uh, 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 or, or flesh that's been wounded. Um, and with all with much of my work and maybe with this image you know in particular you can't know all of those facts just by looking at this image um and one of the one of the kind of goals i have i think is to make images that that stay in the viewer's mind's eye <laughs> even when they're not looking at them any longer uh and and i hope that this is one of those that 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 works in that way uh, it's very difficult to know what's going on. And in fact, when I'm making these pictures, I often don't know what's going on. And it's only as I research things later that I, term, you know, that I find out the sort of um, troubling issues behind them. Katie Lee Coven, as I look at this image of what David was saying, uh, you know, it is very, as you said, very beautiful. Mm-hmm. As you look at it longer, I do see, I do see the wounds, right? Right. It's, it's very clear. Um, this is what art does, right? It, it draws you in there. There are many different layers. Right. I think, you know, David does um, such an amazing job of creating imagery that invites you. You know, it's it's not arresting when you originally, you know, initially engage with the work. It There is a beauty, a curiosity about it. And, you know, um, there's a level of abstraction to some of the work, not all of it. And this piece in particular, there, there is, it, it certainly could be an abstract painting if you are, you know, not looking very closely at it. Um, and then, and, and but that's what is intriguing about it, um, uh, you know, in terms of that viewer experience. And as David conveyed, you know, one, him wanting it to be in the mind's eye as you walk away to maybe think about it more and and to consider it more. Um, you know, that's that's what you want art to do. Um, it's certainly, you know, it's it's very subjective. Every person is going to take away something different. And um, but you need something to draw them in to have to encourage them to take a moment and and think about what they're seeing and consider it, even if only for a brief moment. If it stays with them, then there's something they're going to learn and think about, you know, as mm-hmm. they as they navigate through more images, especially, you know, through an exhibition and, and walk away. By the way, I'll invite viewers to uh, go to davidmazel.com and you can uh, click on, under works, uh, tick on, uh, click on Terminal Mirage. You'll see this image, many other images there as well. Uh, David Maisel, we only have about uh, three or four minutes left, and I, I was so struck by your project Desolation Desert. I want to talk, have you talk a little bit about, uh, sure. about that. Yeah. Um, well, as you'd mentioned earlier, I was the fortunate recipient of a 2018 Guggenheim Fellowship, and that gave me funds to pursue this project that I had been thinking about for a couple of years. Um, I'm really interested in the fact that we are, you know, trying to move away from from gas-powered vehicles to electric vehicles, but I'm kind of curious about what, what the price <laughs> might be of that technology as well. And so, as it turns out, um, lithium uh, is an integral component of rechargeable batteries, whether in a car or in your iPhone or in your you know, your laptop. And uh, the Atacama Desert in Chile is the source of m- much of the world's lithium. And so I traveled to the Atacama, which is this um, um, very sensitive eco-region. Um, it's the highest and driest desert on the planet. And it's now being transformed at this 
unparalleled, unparalleled pace and scale by extractive industries, uh, in particular for lithium, but also for copper mining. It has a, a century-long, uh, at least a century-long history of being mined for copper. So I was able to make um, a number of... Um, I, I worked there for several weeks and was able to make um, this new body of work, Desolation Desert. These are aerial images of these sites that give you um, uh, a sense of the scale, uh, the beauty, <laughs> and and the complexity uh, of this landscape that's being irrevocably altered. Uh, I'll, I'll just quote you here from this uh, exhibit uh, just briefly, uh, and then we'll have to end the program. Oh, just about out of time. Uh, you say, these images of the Atacama were intended to counter our collective misapprehension of the desert as terra incognita, a vast emptiness upon which we impose the notion of purity and boundlessness. Uh, you go on to say these uh, nude photographs show how the supposedly remote Atacama Desert is becoming part of a planetary fabric of urbanization and at what cost. And that, I think, gets into a, a major theme of, of, of all of your works. Um, so I, I guess just a, a minute left. Uh, David Maisel, what, um, what do you most want people to take from Proving Ground? Hmm. I don't want to define that, really. I think um, I, I'm... I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to have viewers come into the, those incredible gallery spaces and, and see the exhibit that we've been able to make there. Um, I think it's essential to for us to try to expand our sense of what defines landscape and what defines our environment and uh, what exists in the world around us. You know, we have a very limited view of our, our own worlds the worlds that we occupy, you know, we, we go from our home to our offices, we go to the shopping mall, or we go to the, the beach, we go to a national park, but there are a lot of sites that we don't know exist and that we don't get to see, uh, and I think it's, it's essential for us to sort of think about all of those sites that, that actually contribute to how we live now, you know, I, you know, in terms of the Atacama desert work, the desolation desert work, I carry an iPhone. <laughs> I have a laptop. I'm certainly not alone. I'm complicit in all of this. Uh, uh, but I think it's important for us to sort of consider the, the, the wider view of, of what, what the sort of sacrificial landscapes of, of, of the contemporary world are and, and how they how they get there and, 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 what what sort of costs are, are being paid, what price is being paid. Well, we'll leave it there. We're at the end of our hour. Um, uh, David Maisel, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Tom. Katie Lee Coven, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next up, it's Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton and Lael Gilbert. So, Lael, did you know you were going to be a game show contestant today? I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> this is your chance. We're going to play Utah Cities with Food Names. Oh, I don't know if I've always wanted to do that, <laughs> but I'll give it a go. I'll give you some clues. Each answer is a city in Utah that has food or a food substance in its name. We'll invite the listeners to play along, so let me know when you think you have an answer, Lael. I'll kind of finish the clues, and then we'll see how we do. All right. If you get it right, we need some kind of chime. Um, bing. Maybe a dinner bell? I mean, this is bread and butter, <laughs> oh, that so. That would be better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. First city. Two words. Examples of the first word include apple, peach, cherry, you got an idea? I think I might, but there are several options. Take a guess. Uh, is it Fruta? Well, this is just the two, the city has two words. Oh, right, okay. Nope, not Fruta, but shorten that. <laughs> Fruit. For the first word. Very good. Fruit. <laughs> ding, ding, <laughs> goes the dinner bell. Uh, so then fruit is the first word. Let's raise the bar for the second word. So this is a lofty fruit. I might say, I won't hike next to the cliff's edge. I'm afraid of heights. Fruit heights. Fruit heights. A great city. Fruit heights received its name from fruit orchards above the valley floor. It was settled in 1850, and Fruit Heights is located in eastern Davis County 
bordered by Kaysville and Farmington, as well as the Wasatch Mountains to the east. But Fruit Heights wasn't the city's first name. It was known as East Kaysville until it was renamed in 1939. I think Fruit Heights sounds... It's the winner. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Kaysville's great, but, you know, you've got to have your own name. All right, this is the second Utah city with a food name. This is one word, but it has two parts. Here are some one-word clues for the first part. Sweet, sticky, amber... Could we add Winnie the Pooh to that? <laughs> is it honey? It is honey. I was going to say bees, but you got it. So the first part of the word, this one word, is honey. The second part, a suffix that we use to mean town or village. This one's not too hard. I love Honeyville. Honeyville. Honeyville was established in 1861. Honeyville is in Box Elder County, north of Brigham City. The area was initially known as Hunsaker or Hunsaker's Mill, for the settler and local mill owner, Abraham Hunsaker. But years later, it was officially named Honeyville. And it's not 100% clear on how Honeyville received its name. Most versions of the story relate to Hunsaker, either to commemorate his beekeeping or as a shortened version of his name, the H-U-N part of Hunsaker. Either way, Honeyville tastes great to me. Third City. The third city might be a little bit more challenging, so this is going to test you. This name does not include a food itself, but it is related to a food seasoning, the most popular food seasoning. It's one word with three syllables. The city is in Sevier County in the high plateau country of central Utah. Though it was used as hunting grounds by early Native Americans, the area's first permanent settlers came in 1864 and found abundant salt deposits nearby. So we're thinking salt. So the salt is the seasoning? Salt is the seasoning. Uh, it's Name county. starts with an S and it ends with an A. It means salt pan or salt pit. Final clue for you that wear contacts. There's something you have to put Salina. it in. Salina. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> and there is an active salt mine near Salina in Redmond. So I'd say that's three for three. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. That's generous of you. <laughs> Good job, Lael. <laughs> Listeners, how did you do? This wasn't an exhaustive list of Utah cities with food names. In fact, we will hear about a few more cities or towns in an upcoming segment. But in the meantime, slice up some peaches, drizzle them with honey, and toss on a pinch of salt for good measure. It's like a tour of Utah in a bowl. This is Jen Ashton and Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and PBS Utah and the Natural History Museum of Utah. Explore the American West with Prehistoric Road Trip, hosted by Emily Grassley. Join an interactive online preview followed by a panel discussion with paleontologists across the state. Information at pbsutah.org events. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.